Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Let us get going today with uh, one of our favorite guests. We like having him in to uh, talk all kinds of local issues because heaven knows there's no shortage of those these days. Hamilton City Hall is, uh, is a repository for stories these days. John Best is the publisher of the Bay Observer, joins us now. John, how are you today? Just great, Scott. Nice to be with you. You as well. Thanks for always like having you on here. And um, uh, let, let's start with traffic today. This is... Um, Traffic in Hamilton is something, I don't know if every city talks about traffic as much as we do, uh, but boy, we talk about it a lot. And we seem to have two camps in this city. One that says, everything's fine. Don't screw up our traffic. Don't make us drive at 30 kilometers an hour. Don't put rules on every intersection, not having right turns and blah, blah, blah. And others saying, our traffic is the most dangerous in the world. We need to get cars off the roads almost. Is this unusual, do you think, with our city? Are we unique this way? I don't think so, Scott. I uh, I listened to some Toronto news, and it seems to me that there's uh, a raging debate there about uh, especially bike lanes. That seems to be a mm. real talk show favorite there. So I, I don't think so. I mean, I haven't followed too many other cities other than Hamilton and, and Toronto, but... Uh, you know, I, I think with just the growing population, the uh, the number of cars that are on the road, I mean, even though there's all kinds of people trying to prevent the number of cars, it seems that, you know, the total number of vehicles just continues to grow. Uh, you know, we have congestion and I guess, you know, it, uh, the police will tell you that uh, with cell phones and uh, you know the the distracted driving situation is just getting worse and worse so uh, no i don't think we're the, the one area where i think we are perhaps a little different is the area of one-way streets uh, in hamilton we've converted a lot of one-way streets to two lane or uh, to two two directional streets and frankly i don't think it's been much of a problem uh however i i always get nervous when there's people that say, well, we've done it with several streets, let's do it with every Ooh. street. Uh, I think there are still justifications for some one-way streets, given our traffic patterns in, in Hamilton. But, um, you know, uh, I, I I think we can always say if something's a good idea, let's, let's do it everywhere. And that's not always a good idea. Well, you know, it was a number of months ago, I can't even remember how long ago now, that um, I wrote something for the paper, and I think we talked about it on the show. There was a big accident on the link, a motorcycle involved. It was a very serious accident. That's not the issue. Uh, the issue was because of that accident, the link was essentially shut down. And we saw when you take all that traffic and bulk it into city streets, it was impossible to drive anywhere on the mountain. We're now going to talk about, we are talking, the city is planning to essentially intentionally do that with Main Street, reducing lanes, widening bike lanes, widening sidewalks, making it two ways so there's fewer lanes. And I, I you know, I, I get the argument that we want our streets to be safer. Of course we want our streets to be safer. I think it's a fair and not ridiculous question though to say, to what lengths will we go to that? There will always be car accidents. To what do we want to make it so that our roads are undrivable in order to make them safer? Because that seems to almost be the trade-off in some cases. Oh, I think it is. Uh, I, I don't think there's any question that that a lot of these measures are uh, designed to discourage people, quite frankly, from driving in those areas. And you know, I understand the concern, but when we're talking about Main Street, I I, I think the big problem there 
is that if, if we're making Main Street a two-way street now, uh, are we taking into account what might happen with LRT, which uh, I think it's fair to say that through the downtown, the LRT is going to essentially make it impossible uh, for most motorists to even want to go there. And, and that's by design uh, in part. But I just wonder when you, you know, it's great to say, let's make Main Street two-way, but if um, King Street uh, suddenly becomes uh, impassable for cars, then I don't know what we're looking at. I just think these these various measures should be coordinated with each other uh, mm. before we go too far down the road. Do you think that people, because I've, I've had this, this discussion and I've heard different answers. Do you think that when the downtown, as you described, becomes that way, when King Street is impassable and Main Street slows down, are people from Ancaster, Dundas, Stony Creek, Flamborough, Waterdown, Glanbrook, are they going to take public transit to come downtown or are they just not going to come downtown? I would say they're not going to come downtown. I mean, there isn't, let's face it, there's not a whole lot of reason to go downtown. Uh, you know, the shopping, there's shopping malls on the mountain, shopping malls in all the suburbs. So if it's, if it's grocery shopping or just regular shopping, there's no need to go there. Um, is that healthy, though, that we would essentially be intentionally mechan uh, putting in place a two-tiered city then? We're, we're essentially dividing the city in half and saying, we don't even want you to come down here. Well, I, I think in some ways, psychologically, just because of the, the nature of the escarpment, uh, th that's kind of the way it is now. There, there are people that live on the mountain that, that very, very seldom go uh, into the lower city. I, I, I live on the mountain. I still do come downtown a fair bit, but I've certainly discovered since I moved to the mountain that the need to be downtown is is really less less and less. And part of that is uh, a historic problem that goes back to the 80s when uh, we started uh, building, uh, you know, suburban shopping malls. It, it took the cores. I mean, we're by far not the only city. Almost every major city in Canada has suffered from a hollowing out of the core. Uh, so, you know, it's it's a national phenomenon in many ways, but um, it's quite possible to live your life in Hamilton and, and uh, not go to the lower city yeah, other than the odd entertainment event. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a, uh, a very large condo that is being proposed. It, uh, it looks like it's probably going to get done, but we will see on that one. Uh, Mohawk and Upper Sherman. Huge development, something like 2,000 units are proposed to be in this area. But there are those who say, wait a second, this is, this is too much. We shouldn't be putting this many buildings, this many apartments, this many condos all in one place. I want to bring John Best, uh, publisher of the Bay Observer, back into the conversation. And John, you, you've written about this on the Bay Observer the challenge with this is that we are sitting in the middle of what everyone acknowledges is a housing crisis where we need every unit we can get. So it becomes a real conundrum when someone then comes forward and says, let me build you something that will help. And then we say, no, we don't want that. We, we want housing units. We just don't want that. It becomes a conundrum. It does. Uh, th this project is, however, um, really one of the, I, I can't recall anything of this magnitude being proposed as, as one single project. So it's, as you said, it's almost 2,000 units. It's uh, going to be, and, and just for people to picture it, it's, it's on the 
uh, plaza at uh, at uh, Mohawk Road and Upper Sherman. It's where there used to be the Walmart, and then there was a grocery store there. Mm -hmm. There's there's still a beer store there. That's the well, that's only handy. thing that yeah, it's very <laughs> handy actually. Um, so it's it's been an underused uh, shopping mall for years and years. It was in decline, uh, but it's it's as it's going to involve uh, some twenty five story. In total, they're going to put eight buildings on that site. Some of them as high as twenty five stories. And um, Councillor uh, Danko, who chairs the planning committee, he called it uh, infill sprawl. So, which is a kind of a new phrase, but it's, it is a huge project. Uh, the city tried to work with the uh, proponents to see if they could whittle it down to something that, that staff felt they could support. But uh, what's happening now, Scott, as you know, uh, there's this rule that uh, a city that uh, has to render a decision on these kind of projects within 120 days which may sound like a lot of time, but it's really not when you're into complex issues like uh, sewer and water and setbacks and all kinds of things. Anyway, uh, developers have, in in many cases here and elsewhere, taken to just letting the clock run out because at that point, if you go past 120 day without making a decision of a municipality fails to to make that uh, determination, they can take it directly to the land tribunal. And I, it was said today at the meeting that the land tribunal finds in favor of the developer about 97% mm -hmm. of the time. So even though uh, there was a lot of opposition to the project expressed at the meeting today, including the ward councillor, Esther Pauls, uh, I don't think there was anybody that thinks they've got much of a chance once this thing gets to the land tribunal. It's got a good chance of being approved. What makes this so interesting though to me, John, is that this, I, I, like to me, look, the, the photo, the, the discussion, the idea of putting this many people in that space, it's, it's a lot of people. It's a lot of uh, units all in one small space. And yet many of the people who have been anti-sprawl, who now also seem to be anti-this, are the ones who have been arguing for intensification. This is what we want. We want more people in smaller spaces. We want to allow people to turn their houses into quadplexes or, you know. So it, it seems as though we want things until somebody comes forward and says, fine, I'll do that. And then we go, well, wait, I didn't really mean it. I didn't really mean that we wanted intensification. This is too much intensification. It's almost like we don't really seem to like almost any of the options. Well, I think that's, you know, that's the nature of living in neighborhoods. Everybody wants to protect their neighborhoods. I, you know, I, I think what's happened here, frankly, is that the, the push to build more housing has become so strong, uh, notwithstanding the fact that uh, Ford's had to back down on the green belt. Uh, I think it's going to be very difficult uh, to successfully oppose uh, very large projects. And if we're going to accommodate, I think it's something like almost 250,000 more people in the next 30 years, I think you're going to see these mega complexes popping up all over the city. Yes, yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that's the price I'm afraid we're going to have to pay if we're going to uh, provide housing for people. It's, uh, you know, it, it flies in the face. I, I feel sorry for planning departments in many hmm. ways because they've always worked so carefully. The whole idea of urban planning, it got started in the beginning of the last century and it was all about separating 
um, you know, industrial areas from living areas and creating parks and all these things seem to be very much in jeopardy right now uh, because of this imperative to simply build as many houses, as many uh, housing units as as are possible. But should, and we, I look, I agree. Uh, but at the same time, shouldn't those who have been the most vigorous anti-sprawlers and the most vigorous proponents for infill and intensification, shouldn't they be screaming loudly in favor of this? Because this seems like it's exactly what they wanted. Well, I hate to say this, Scott, but uh, I also noted uh, a year or two ago that most of those signs that said uh, Doug Ford stop urban boundary expansion were sitting on the front of single family homes. Yeah, in the and suburbs. That, yeah, <laughs> because how are you going to put up, you know, they're handing out lawn signs. Now think about it. If you're going to accept a lawn sign, you have to have a lawn, which means you probably live in a house. Yep. Yeah, and and there was those people that were, you know, the vast majority of the signs were on single-family homes. I mean, there was the odd one in front of a, you know, a multiplex or something. But it 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 just struck me. I I couldn't leave that thought alone whenever I wrote about the subject because it, you know, it just seemed so hypocritical. But you can't there you have, are. You cannot. I, I'm sorry if if you are someone who who really hated the idea of sprawl and really hates this. You. We've got to build these homes somewhere and it may not be utopia, but at least it's something. And again, it seems almost hypocritical to say, I don't want anything spread out, but I also don't want too much in the same spot. I I don't know how else you do this. I don't know what the other answers are. I really don't. Well, I think that's the reason why the Ford government is taking powers away from local planning, because they know that at the political level, uh, the pressure on a councillor to side with angry residents is just so yes. strong that uh, I guess the thought is that nothing would get built if we if we simply followed the rules the way they were. Hmm. That is uh, John Best. He is the publisher of the Bay Observer. Always love having you on, John. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I don't know about you. Um when it comes to things that someday you would want to own or think would be really cool to own or really worthwhile having in your possession. But certainly if you're talking about movies or cartoons or whatever else, I mean, what is the, what is the, the very image of wealth? It would be gold bars. If you have gold bars, Fort Knox has gold bars, rich people have gold bars, thefts, bank robberies, they steal gold bars. I don't know where all these gold bars are. Well, I do know where the gold bars are actually, because you can now buy gold bars at Costco. Legitimate, real 24 karat gold bars are for sale through Costco. $2,679.99. Now you're saying, wait, that's not a very big gold bar. No, it's not a very big gold bar. It's about an inch and a half by an inch. It's one ounce of 24 karat gold. But apparently these things are flying off the shelves. They can't keep them in stock. People are buying gold bars like you cannot believe, which gets me wondering why. Yes, it would be cool to own a gold bar. I'd rather have one of the big bricks that you could put somewhere. That looks cooler. But why are people buying gold bars now, whether from Costco or anywhere else? Mark Yamada is president and CEO of PUR Investing Incorporated, joins me now. Mark, how are you today? I'm great, Scott. How are you? I am fantastic. This is a, 
in, in a sense, it's a bizarre story. In another sense, I guess it's not because who wouldn't want to have a gold bar, but why are people doing this? What is it? Is it just the uniqueness of it or is there something else you think going on? Um, well, I think what we've learned from social media over the last five or six years is one of the behavioral characteristics of human beings is we, we, we scare very easily. We're really afraid of losing money. Uh, this is one of the great findings of uh, Daniel Kahneman uh, when he won the Nobel Prize in 2003 for behavioral economics. Besides sex and food, we are really, really scared of things. So social media has learned to keep our attention by scaring us. And uh, I think one thing that gold has done over the years uh, is it is a hedge for fear. Hmm. So whenever people are scared of things, they go and buy some gold. Now, uh, I wrote an article a couple of years ago, and I went to refresh it. And uh, there is a sense that gold is a hedge against inflation. It is not. Uh, it used to be uh, when inflation was really running rampant and in double digits up till 1981, uh, gold really exploded. But there were a couple of other reasons for gold to do well. Uh, we had come off the gold standard. You mentioned that Fort Knox has gold. It doesn't have a fraction of the gold it used to have 50 years ago uh, because we've, we've just gone off the gold standard. Uh, and what happened in 1981 is the price of gold peaked at around 400 US and it went sideways for 20 years. Um, and it didn't follow inflation at all. And the last time it spiked was in 2008 in response to the great financial crisis. There's the great fear thing. And then it spiked and it doubled and it quadrupled. Uh, meanwhile, inflation was getting killed. We went from 6% inflation back in, uh, in 1981 to 4% to 2% to under 2% for the last four or five years. And gold got a spike, partly because of the great uh, financial crisis. And then a couple of years ago when COVID came and nobody really understood what was going on mm -hmm. there, it got another spike in price. So to answer your question, why would somebody want to own gold? I'm not so sure. All right. So because, Mark, let me, let me ask you. So uh, like I've got this conspiracy, well, not conspiracy theory. I've got this theory that could be totally bonkers, but let me just throw it out there and tell me if you think there's anything possibly to this. We are, we keep hearing that we are going to be moving towards digital currency, that all of our money is going to be online. I think people like to believe they have, they can hold something that has value in their hand. And if we're not going to have cash. Gold is the closest thing to that, that if something goes haywire with the digital currency or, you know, whatever else, or, you know, we saw the government, whether you agree with the truckers or not, we saw the government freeze bank accounts that uh, I wonder if that, if these kind of things spook people and they feel I need to hold something of value in my hand, I can trade for food or whatever else. Cause I don't know that I believe entirely in the digital currency. Well, you know, you may be onto something, uh, it, it, plays into that, that fear aspect that, that I was talking about earlier. But usually the value of any commodity is the last bid in size. Well, so you say, have say to that again. Say that again. The, what does that where mean? Where the demand is for gold. Okay. So what does that and, mean? The last bid. Say that again, what you just said. Uh, yeah. The, the, the most important thing to remember is the, the last bid in size. 
who really wants to buy that last ounce of gold? Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. So, so if you look at the demand for gold, uh, it's 55% from jewelry. So what does that mean? And, and that's that's actually up from, from two or three years ago when it was about 42%. So what does that mean? It means that countries like India and China particularly, uh, they are the largest consumers of gold jewelry. Uh, they take literally 50% of everything that's produced in the gold market. Uh, and last year, uh, I think there were about 3,100 metric tons of gold produced. India consumed 774 metric tons and, and China uh, 834. So slightly over half goes to jewelry production. So if you look at what's happening in those countries, whenever there's instability in China or an unsettling of governments, and we've just seen what's happening with India, they're going through this uh, certainly a relationship crisis with Canada. Yes. Uh, throwing out a bunch of our uh, our diplomats. Uh, but Modi has been undergoing a, uh, a sort of a right-wing movement, and there is an element of uncertainty that all of that brings. So perhaps gold consumption and gold demand uh, has been heightened certainly over the last two or three years in India. And in China, where the economy has been faltering, and they really, they're like a shark moving through water. They have to have about a 3% annual growth just to keep everybody fed, it's their growth rate has slipped below 3%. Uh, and there's another reason for concern. And for the very reason that you pointed out, people are uncertain. They might want to have something solid in their pocket so they can buy a loaf of bread tomorrow if the currency goes funny. Uh, th there is something to that. But the marginal demand for gold has always been jewelry. And if you're ever looking for why gold is moving up or down, really look to the politics and the geography of the major markets for, for jewelry, and, and they are India and China. Uh, UAE is third, the U.S. and Singapore uh, come in next. So uh, that really drives the price of gold rather than uh, issues of inflation or anything else. The word you started with was fear, that this is a, often a fear-based thing. Is there reason for people to be fearful of the economy right now. I and mean, we keep hearing a social media, you alluded to it, but you know, we keep hearing rumblings that, oh, there's a recession coming or, oh, there's this, and it hasn't yet. But is there, is that a crazy thing to have some fear about what might happen to the economy? You know, it's, it's always good to be a little bit fearful, but that keeps you grounded. Um, it, it keeps you from speculating too much. Um, and indeed, some of the elements uh, for uh, a recession have been in place for uh, over a year. A negative yield curve is the one that everybody trots out. Uh, but you have to remember that economists have predicted 20 of the last 10 recessions. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great line. <laughs> so yeah. you, you have to put your, put your tongue firmly in your cheek when you hear an economist talking about uh, an oncoming recession. Uh, but of course, everybody fears this. Um, but then you have to ask your the next logical question. If there is a recession, what is the best asset to own? And most of these articles that have talked about Costco and their gold talk about gold as an investment. Gold is not an investment. Mm. It doesn't pay any interest. It pays no dividend. 
there, uh, it, it, it just sits there. It's not a productive asset. You can't eat it. You, you, you can make it into, well, now this, this is really on the margin. Uh, the, the pins that go into the CPUs and GPUs that are uh, fostering this artificial intelligence boom at the moment, uh, they are made of a, a gold substrate. Now, the, the thing is, over the past three years, the amount of gold in those pins, uh, in those uh, semiconductors, has been reduced from 80% gold to 40% gold. So they've actually cut the amount of gold. Gold is an excellent conductor of electricity, which is why they want it for these little microcircuits. Um, so there, there may, have, may have been a little bit of a push with the AI push, uh, artificial intelligence push over the past uh, uh, year or so. But the reality is the amount of total production that goes even to that is only seven or eight percent. So it's not a substantial enough portion to actually drive the price significantly uh, from one period to another. It, it goes back to back to jewelry. So if you were going to invest then to make sure that you were set for the future, better to invest in gold or in Costco that figured out this about people. And as a result, their stocks are going up because they were clever enough to offer gold and everyone seems to want to buy it. Well, you know, you're, you're onto something. Do you have your analyst license? That sounds like an excellent idea. Uh, Costco is a great concept. Uh, it's a great company. I, I have uh, friends who have worked there and uh, they had health issues and, and Costco really took care of them. So they really care about their employees. That's the kind of company moving uh, to a new era that I think everybody would like to have involved. And with AI taking up uh, a lot of the conversation, a lot of the oxygen in the room, I think Costco is going to make uh, really be able to leverage uh, the benefits of AI. Uh, I think they're going to look after their employees. And that's an excellent idea uh, to actually uh, invest in companies like Costco that are, are, are offering people great value. What is your favorite product at Costco? <laughs> oh, oh uh, well, I, I don't want to, uh, there are too many of them and many of them come in too large quantities to, uh, but, but the brilliance of it though, the brilliance of it is that, and we were, you know, talking about this earlier today, that the, the, they, they are, they do a bang up job at getting stuff there that you don't know you want until you walk in there and you go, how did I ever live without a 15 gallon tub of mayonnaise? Right. And, and ah. so, so this is, I would never well, maybe I shouldn't say never. I would, I would have been very unlikely that I would have ever said to you, I need to buy a gold bar. But now that Costco has it and they offer it, I'm kind of thinking maybe I should buy a gold bar. Maybe that's a really good thing. Exactly what we're talking about. That's, that I think is the brilliance of the people who do the shopping for Costco is they make us believe that we needed something that we never would have thought otherwise. Well, you know, uh, uh, Costco's marketing department and the amount of information they have about their members and what the members want and purchase uh, is a tremendous database. And one of the things that we are all going to learn uh, about artificial intelligence is with that kind of database, they can put products in front of us, as you say, before we know that we need them. Um, Amazon actually has a copyright on a product that they will send you a list of things that they think you need. You send back the stuff you, you don't want. Now think about that for a minute. 
you know, Costco may actually now, if they send you a, a couple of wafers of gold, uh, if because the nature of your purchases in the past would indicate that you're in that snack bracket or you're particularly fearful or who who knows, somebody who actually buys gold bars of chocolate may actually like gold bars of real gold. You know, they have the yeah. algorithm somewhere. They know far beyond what you and I know about what we want. I, I thought this too, because we got to run, but I thought if people are buying gold at Costco, and, and these are Canadian Costco's, by the way, this isn't just in the States. If people are buying gold for the reason that you and I have talked about, that you think because they may be fearful about the future, because this has sold so well by all reports, I fully expect the next thing we're going to see at Costco are survivalist kits or something like that. Seriously, where they will then say, well, clearly people are fearful. Let's put together some sort of thing with, you know, 10 days worth of beans or rice or something in it so that they can stash it away. Let's follow the trend right along and see where it goes. Well, you know, the price will be right. Yeah, that's true. And it will be enormous. I don't know where you'll hide it. You, you may need two garages to put it in there, but uh, it's, uh, it's a fascinating story about uh, you can now yeah, buy bars of gold at Costco. Mark Yamada, president and CEO of PUR Investing. Thank you so much for this. Really appreciate it today. Great job. Great, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I am a massive fan of the show Frasier. We still actually watch it many nights before bed. It's on Crave. We'll just watch an episode or two just to wind it down for the night. Great show. Some of the best writing that was ever on television, honestly, really. I mean, some of the smartest, best writing, great acting. The whole thing was terrific. Great premise. The whole, everything about Frasier was wonderful. However, that said, I am finding myself almost, I don't know, despairing. No, that's not, that's too strong a word. Worrying about what is a Frasier reboot going to look like without Daphne, without Niles, without Roz, without Martin, without Eddie the dog, without any of the, just Frasier is back. And yet here we go. There is a Frasier reboot that is coming out. Like so many other shows, uh, after Friends, we had Joey. And after the Golden Girls, we had the Golden Palace. And you know what? They tend to uh, not do so well. Bill Briou is a television critic. He's a journalist. He's an author. Uh, he is the guy behind Briou.tv. Joins us now. Bill, how are you today? I'm doing well, Scott. How are you? I am well, but I got to tell you, as someone who, as I said, loves Frasier and doesn't want the, the, the vision or the memory of, I don't know, to be tarnished, should I be worried that bringing back a new Frasier without the heart and the soul and the elements of Frasier is going to disappoint? Well, I'm like you, Scott. I mean, I love Frasier. Uh, when, when COVID was at its worst, uh, we bunkered down and watched all of Frasier, all 200, how many episodes, uh, like four a night for like a year. And uh, it holds up. It is so funny. And so I'm, you know, I thought... Frasier without Niles is like Laurel without Hardy. You know, like <laughs> That's right. Just didn't have high hopes. Now, I've seen the first three episodes, and, um, you know, I don't, I can't remember. I think I probably clicked on some embargo, but I could tell you by the second episode, it was Frasier, and I was really pleasantly surprised. So is it the same team that is behind it? Not at all. Uh, you know, if you go, there's a great uh, web podcast, Ken Levine, Hollywood and Levine. Ken Levine and his writing partner, they wrote and show ran a lot of those episodes. They worked on Cheers as well. 
And so, no, none of the original people are behind the scenes except Kelsey Grammer, the star. Um, and you've got one of the showrunners now worked on How I Met Your Mother. Like it was, you know, just different people. So usually that's not good. Um, and yeah, the whole cast is different. You know, the original character, we saw him on Cheers in Boston. He was in Seattle for 20 years. He left the building. Now he's back in Boston. And his son, uh, if you remember the original show, Freddie, yes. he's now 30 and he's a fireman working in, in Boston. And Frazier comes back and, uh, you know, he is now the relationship, father and son relationship, before it was Martin Crane and his son Frazier. Now she was on the other foot. It's Frazier is the dad and Freddie is the son. And um, it's fascinating. You know, Frazier is just as fussy and, you know, uh, everything. But uh, to see him in that role is, is quite uh, effective and is kind of funny. Uh, you know, and that's encouraging because as I, you know, as I went through, I mean, there, there are great spinoffs that have happened over the years for sure. I mean, there's a lot of spinoffs that you point to that became hits, but more of them were horrible and that's you know that's the concern and so i mean amazing that they were able to do this because i did not expect to hear you say that at all no older listeners may remember after mash or oh, the new yeah. wkrp in Cincinnati. Oh, yeah. uh you know yeah you're right and <laughs> thing is and more recent examples like murphy brown the reboot was a bomb and uh but i think that was a show that lasted 10 years and that was eight years too long like People were done with that show. I think it has to be something you still want to see. Now, Roseanne, which is the Connors, is the shining example. It's, you know, it, once the strike is over and everything, they'll be heading into a sixth season. Even after that show blew up when Roseanne got tossed off of it herself. But it still has good writers. And that was a mix of old and new writers on the reboot. So, yeah, it's, it's the, the thing is, so Scott, you know, it's on a streaming platform. It's on Paramount Plus. It'll premiere there October 12th. So it's not like it's on CBS uh, for 20 or NBC originally for 24 episodes a year. They just have to do 10. They have to do 10 good ones. And they won't be 10 good ones. They'll be eight or seven or six. But if they can get six really good ones, that's going to be enough, I think, for people who wish to see this show again. I'm sorry, I didn't hear anything you said after the new WKRP. I went into some sort of <laughs> PTSD situation. One of the great shows of all time turned into an absolute just steaming pile of yak dung when they brought that one back. That was just horrendous. But And that uh, was brought back by the original showrunner, Hugh Wilson. So you just sometimes it's just past its time. But don't forget, Frasier came to Frasier uh, without any of the people from Cheers. And he's doing it again on this show in uh, going back to Boston. We will see a glimpse of uh, Perry Gilfin, and, uh, who was Roz, yes. and I think uh, um, the, the actress who played um, Fraser's ex-wife. Um, Lilith. Lilith. Uh, but no, none of the other regulars, there's no Niles, there's no Daphne, but we do see Niles and Daphne's son, who is uh, very much like uh, uh, Chip off his old uh, <laughs> germophobic dad. So we've got Frasier then coming back, and that's uh, that is very encouraging. I'm very uh, I'm very happy to hear that I'm not going to be completely let down. The other show that's just starting up, is, oh no, not the other show, an other show that is just starting up is the latest season of Survivor, which I I, I can't believe Survivor is still going, and I'll tell you why because, and it's always done well in Canada, but 
if you keep the same show going for too long, it becomes tiresome. You just mentioned Murphy Brown. By the flip side, if you tinker too much with it, you screw it up. So how, how have they managed to find the balance between keeping it new and fresh and not making it so new and fresh that nobody wants to watch anymore? That's a great question because I know there are some uh, core viewers who are uh, not happy with how the game is played today. There's too many uh, sort of game changers. There's this hourglass thing. You can sort of reset the clock. And people who are real, true Survivor uh, fans you need to be a survivor and you need to have a game plan going in and you need to execute it perfectly. Uh, you can, all that game plan could be for not just by a happenstance now. So, um, but I think, you know, the show has evolved with the times. CBS has mandated that it be a very diverse cast. Uh, there's 18 people. They don't, you know, it used to be 39 days on the Island. Now they're 26, I think in Fiji. Um, the, the, the host is the same Jeff Probst, which helps. But yeah, it's expanding to 90 minutes now to uh, help take up okay. some of the room from scripted shows. Um, and yeah, it's remained like a monster hit in Canada and the U.S. So I just think it was a great formula to begin with. People immediately responded, and it, it's changed enough with the times that people keep coming back. Yeah, it's one of those shows that um, if you go back to the very first one, and I don't know if people remember, the, uh, I guess it was the summer of 2000. It was a summer fill-in show. Mm. And, I mean, it was the water cooler conversation thing. Like every, every day, every Friday morning, I guess it was on Thursdays, every Friday morning, that's all people talked about at work was who got voted off or who didn't get voted off. It was, it was an amazing success. It was, a, it was just such a, a, a pop culture phenomenon at that time. But you, it seems as though, and, and I think this has come to fruition, that, you know, it, it was very naive back then. The idea of playing, I, we went back years later and watched some clips of the very first season. And I remember there was one contestant whose strategy for voting people off was just voting alphabetically. Like there was literally no thought process behind it. And now, now I, I could, I would have loved to have gone on one of those early shows. Now I would never, I don't think want to play because I would literally go insane thinking nonstop about all the things that are going on. I, my, my brain would, would make me crazy. Well, that's why people keep watching. I think, you know, just for what you said, uh, yeah, you know, the strategy used to be the beginning, vote the oldest people off first. Uh, and then they started to get and realize with several people who played in one, you always bring the oldest person with you to the final uh, round, uh, you know, because they're the most loyal, you know. So there's, there's elements that true fans have, you know, stuck with and realized. And uh, I just think that, um, I, I, you know, Scott, I was working at the Toronto Sun when this show began, and I thought it was going to be like disco. I thought it was <laughs> two and a half years. And, uh, so yep. what do I know? Well, and there was good reason to think that because the first one was, as I say, a cultural phenomenon. The second one was pretty good. And then by the third one, I don't know if we really knew who the people were. I mean, to this day, Bill, I bet you that there are many people listening who could name off the top of their head, three or four names from the first right. ever season. You'd know Richard Hatch, yep. who won. Rudy. He walked, he walked around naked. Rudy, the old guy, the Navy SEAL. Yep. You, people will think maybe a Boston Rob who was on the fourth version and then again later in the All-Star ones. Uh, but you're right. Only the real fans can name 
um, you know, there's 18, one returning one this time, and uh, there's one Canadian in the mix. And, um, yeah, it's just casting, I think, is so important with this show, and they seem to know what they're doing for that. The one other thing about this, and not to drag this out too long, the one other thing that I really wondered about, and I guess they've gotten around it, I know that a, that a while back, as you pointed out, there was a real emphasis put on, you know, we got to have not all just really young, good-looking people with a couple old folks thrown in there. Yeah. Um, it, it's not just eye candy now. I wondered about that because I've often thought, you know, part of the allure of this back in the day was you have a whole bunch of hot-looking men and women, and um, that's part of reason why you would tune in. I, I, I would suggest that that's not at all the situation. I, I don't want to say they're all ugly. I don't mean that, but it's it's clearly not just a bunch of sunshine girls and sunshine boys that are that are playing. Well, look at who we remember: Rudy and Richard Hatch. You know, I mean, and you're right. I looked at the the CBS photo site. They posted all 18 pictures, and there's nobody in a bikini. Like they're, they're it's a much different look to it. It's uh, less uh, stereotypical. Um, and, um, yeah, I think that just reflects, um, society more today. It's certainly a more diverse cast and, uh, you need to be able to identify with these people. And if it's just people in bikinis and stuff, then it's the bachelor or it's another show. It's not survivor. And I think that's why it's, it's it still works. I see. I had an idea for a show and I think you, you've written about this. Uh, on on brew.tv. I had an idea way back, and I know this was demented. I'll, I'll grant you that. But you have a game of Survivor with 18 death row inmates, all who, <laughs> all who have been sentenced to death through the courts. And as soon as they get voted out, they're immediately taken and they suffer their penalty. You want to well, see people competing for to stay they, that there is a there is a competition now. There apparently is something not like that exactly, but there's something closer to that than what the real survivor is. There is, I think it's called Outlast. It's a, it's on a streaming platform, and yeah, there's like real criminals, and you know they have to survive in cold weather. You've never had a cold weather survivor, uh, and these people they knew you know whoever is still around wins. So they started to take away the blankets, the heat source, and like they were literally kill to win this game. And that's that's on there now. You can look for it. Outlast, I'm pretty sure, is the name of it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you knew there were going to be things and variations of this. It's such a hit. But uh, that one's uh, <laughs> one of the more recent and more intriguing ones for sure. Uh, yeah, that is uh, that is Bill Briou. He is the guy behind Briou.tv, B-R-I-O-U-X.tv. Uh, great website. Uh, Bill, always love having you on. Thanks for talking today. Thanks for having me, Scott. I always like being a guest. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.